Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. We're continuing in uh, in our series in the book of Mark. So we're going to be in the book of Mark today. You can flip your Bibles up into Mark chapter 12, whether it's a physical Bible, you got it on your device, you can pull that out. No judgment here uh, unless you're on Instagram. Um, and uh, today it's kind of a, it's a shorter text, a much shorter text than we dealt with last week. Uh, and so just, just recognize that we're going to pull as much as we can out of this, uh, out of this text this morning. Um, and uh, we, it has a ton of implications for our lives. So where you think maybe we're going to land, we're not actually going to, uh, to land there. Um, I, uh, I grew up playing a lot of sports. Anybody grow up playing sports? Okay, cool. Handful. Anybody coach sports? Not when you were younger, but now. Okay, yeah, handful of you, right? About uh, looks like the same people who played sports, or the only people willing to raise their hands. Cool. Um, that being said, so so I've coached a lot of sports, right? I, I grew up playing sports, and I coached sports. Coached sports for my kids' teams. I coached high school water polo um, for a little bit of time. Um, but most recently, I was uh, I was coaching uh, a, a 10U team, so so 10 and unders or under 10s, whatever it is. Um, and this is the first year that these kids are on the big field. Right when you're under eights, um, it's a small field. There's no goalies, and if you can kind of run in the same, in, in like the right direction and kick the ball, then you're doing really good for under eights. All of that switches when you get to under tens, right? Because it's a big field. They got goalies. They got offsides rules that adults don't even understand, much less kids who are eight years old trying to understand that, right? And so we get our team together for the first time for our first practice, and largely what you're doing for the first practice is you just want to gauge like how good these kids are. Like, what is it that they know? And not that we're going to, you know, go win the World Cup or anything like that. But we just want, I, I want to know, where is the starting place for these kids? That way, I can kind of tailor the different practices to figure out, like, how can we move them forward in a very real way? So practice one, and practice one is always just like, all right, you show up, and we want to see if you can dribble or not. So go dribble around that tree and come back right? And so we're saying, okay, can they dribble? Okay, two of you can dribble. Cool. No, you don't use your hands to dribble. You don't do anything. I right, use your feet to dribble. So they come back and then, so you've gauged that and then it moves to passing, right? So get a partner. You guys are going to pass back and forth. We're going to go all the way back to basics. Yep. Inside of your foot, trap the ball, kick it back, all that stuff. You move to shooting drills, see how well they can shoot or how accurate they can shoot. And then by the end of all of that for practice one, it's like, okay, all of them are, are tired of drills. Let's do a scrimmage. Let's do 15 minutes of scrimmage. Let them run around, do all that, all that stuff. And from there, you kind of tailor it. So that's where you start first practice. Then like by the middle of the year, they're starting to understand, right? And they're starting to be able to spread out a little bit more on the field and make passes and, and shoot at the right goal and all that stuff. And by the end of the year, you're practicing like centering the ball and finishing and all that stuff. But you always have to start at the beginning. You have to start with figuring out, okay, what are the basic necessities that these kids largely need to know or what largely that they already know so we can progress forward from that point? And many of you probably know this, but, but I grew up in a Christian home. And in a Christian home, like, I always had a level of expectation from me. I think I talked a little bit about this whole idea last week, the idea of positional authority versus being obedient to a higher calling, right? And so I would always submit to mom and dad both position, both, be, both because positionally they had more authority than I did, but beyond that, I was a Christian. I am a Christian. And so because of that, the Bible calls us to submit to a higher authority, right? To be ob not, not, not just submit to a higher authority, but to be obedient because of a higher calling on our lives, and that's kind of where, where I was. But here's the thing. 
We get to be more and more obedient to the Lord. It tends to the, the older we get. Right? If you're in here today and, and you're a Christ follower, then congratulations. I just want you to know, hear it from me first, you will never arrive at pure holiness or perfection on this side of eternity. It's not going to happen. Right? For, for the entirety of your life, if you have said yes to Jesus and he is Lord of your life, man, congratulations. You will never arrive until you die. Okay? What? Welcome to church, right? <laughs> like, 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 and that's just the reality of being a Christian, okay? There's always more to do in order for us to become more like Jesus. I mean, just like kind of go through your life stage by stage, right? When I was younger, I lied to make myself look cooler than I actually was, okay? It didn't work out, but I struggled with, with lying. And then when I grew out of that, I was like junior high, and I was struggling with pride at that point and being arrogant in junior high and that sort of thing. When I grew out of that, um, uh, um, when I grew out of that, uh, I got to high school, and I had some friends who really just, they loved Jesus, and they built me up, and so they helped me largely be like, hey, dude, like, you are prideful. Knock it off. Um, and uh, then in high school and college, I got there, and I started beginning to, to struggle with lust and, and struggle with pornography. And, and my godly wife, as well as my, my guys who are like my best friends in the entire world, called me to something greater than the lust of the flesh, right? And, and helped me kill that sin just in time for my struggle with spite and frustration to kind of rear its head at me. And on and on and on it goes. Why, like, why does that happen? What well, happens because we never officially arrive at holiness as long as we're here. That's never going to, like, think about your own life for a minute. Your sin probably is not the same now as it was when you were a little baby Christian. Why? I think part of it's stage of life, right? Legitimately, I think part of it's stage of life. When you're 50, you're not going to struggle with the same things you struggle with when you were five. At least I hope not, right? But more specifically, I think if you call yourself a Christian and you are waking up every day and choosing to follow Jesus in a very real way, then you should slowly but surely become, be becoming more and more holy, over and over and over again. So let's just sit for a second. I want you to think about the things you really struggled with maybe when you were a teenager. I don't know what they are, okay? But think about the, the, the sin in your life that you struggled with when you were a ten, teenager, specifically if you're a Christian. I know for some of us that was much longer ago than, than others of us. But think about those sin issues that maybe you worked really, really hard in your life to put to bed by focusing on Jesus and focusing on his spirit in a very real way and on a regular basis, Okay, so that's junior high, maybe high school, maybe when it was you became a Christian for, uh, for the very first time. Maybe, maybe today, look at your life today, and you're just thinking to yourself, man, I, like, I am going to have this sin issue in my life forever. I've been dealing with it for three, four, five, six years, and I just can't seem to put it, seem to, put it to bed in any way, shape, or form. I feel like I'm just like wearing a badge, wearing it as a badge that everybody can see. You know, maybe it's lust or pride or envy. That's a fun one that social media likes to bring up for everybody. Or maybe it's drunkenness. Like, I don't know what it is that you are currently struggling with when it comes to sin in your life, but my guess is if you're a Christian who has actively committed their life to the Lord, you should be coming more and more like him every day by reading his word, by listening to his spirit, by being at church, by meeting with groups of people who are going to build you up and make you more like Jesus. That means you're going to become more and more obedient to him every day. The question becomes, why then do we need to become more and more obedient to the Lord? Why can't we just say a prayer and call it good? 
right? We even do it here. We do it in church, right? The end of every message, I end with the ABCs. You guys all know what's coming if you've been to church one time. I'm going to end it the same way today, right? We say we're going to finish with the ABCs, admit, believe, choose. We call it a profession of faith. We're saying, God, like, I want to follow you. I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe you sent your son to die on the cross, and I'm going to choose to follow you every single day of my life. And many of us grew up and attended programs and did different things where, man, they said they had like the altar call. Camp is always my favorite. We've got a bunch of junior hires up at camp. They're up at, at Hume right now, and they should be leaving hopefully pretty soon. Um, but, uh, but they're up there, and they're going to be kids as they come back who said, I made a profession of faith. I prayed a prayer, and because of that prayer, I'm saying I'm going to honor God. I'm going to follow God for the rest of my life. And that's great news. Maybe it was VBS. Right? We do VBS every single summer here. We're doing it again this year. We're kids who are as young as five, six, seven years old. They're saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to invite Jesus to live into my heart, which is bad theology. It's the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside you, not Jesus. So can we just all get on the same page with that? Okay? But, but all that to be said, like, like we, why can't we just pray a prayer and call it good? Besides the fact there's some major theological red flags with that, simply praying a prayer and going, going on your way does not give evidence of the Spirit in your life. Okay, And not that man can ever judge whether or not someone else is going to heaven, but Jesus demands much more from us than a prayer. And that's what we're going to pick up on in Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13, start in verse 13 and read on. It'll be on the screen. You can follow along. Uh, on your device as well. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. That's the entirety of the text we're going to be covering today. This is a very, very familiar text to a lot of us, actually, right? Oftentimes it comes up around tax time, rend to Caesar, what is Caesar's? We always talk about that, and Caesar always wants more from us. How much does Caesar actually get? So Jesus, he comes into conflict with religious leaders again at this point. Okay, if you haven't noticed, this is going to be a theme throughout all of the Gospels, but specifically the book of Mark. It's always conflict after conflict after conflict. And we don't really have a time frame on this outside of them simply saying later. If you look at verse 13, it starts off with that word later. Okay, so I was doing my study, like when is, when is actually later? Okay, later than when? Later than the last story that we just went through last week where the Pharisees are asking Jesus by whose authority he's doing these things. And the authority there, the things that they're asking about is Jesus goes over into the temple. He's flipping over tables, tables, right? He's teaching all sorts of different things that are, that are maybe contrary to what the Pharisees want him to teach. And so it is after that. Most people believe this happened the next day, which means that the Pharisees got back together after they had a run-in with Jesus. And they huddled up with the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they like put a plan together like, we're going to catch this guy. We're to catch Jesus in what it says. There's not too much evidence one way or another towards, towards that, but we just know it was later. So again, another run-in. And this one has just as much to do with authority 
as we talked about last week when we already kind of introduced it. We determined that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of those people they talked about last week, they're all about positional authority. That's why they were upset at Jesus because Jesus is going through and he's teaching with this, this authority that, that they don't really understand where this authority is coming from. And Jesus is a threat to their way of life. Jesus is a threat to their being, to everything they do, everything that they stand for. And so because of that, they're like, Who's, whose authority are you teaching by? Is it from heaven or is it from man? And Jesus skirts the question. He's like, I'm not going to tell you that because you don't actually care about that question. So this has so much to do with the same things because the religious leaders were all about positional authority. And so that was the makeup of the group of people. This group of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, this is all they cared about was positional authority. And it was the main sin that they were wrestling with. Right? Because my guess is most of them didn't even know the power they wanted to yield over the Jewish people, over the Jewish nation, was sinful. Right? The Pharisees, man, they thought they were the gatekeepers. Right? They thought they were the ones who were protecting the sheep from, from the wolves, keeping the wolves out of the sheep pen. But in reality, they were exercising, the author, exercising authority over the sheep in such a way that they were severely oppressing this people group that they were supposed to be caring for. So remember, all they care about is positional authority over the Jewish people. Now, it names two groups of people here. It names the Pharisees, and it also names the Herodians. Okay? We hear about the Pharisees all the time. Okay, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, those are all kind of interchanging. We don't often hear about the Herodians. There's two groups of people that we actually don't hear about very often. It's the Herodians and the Zealots. Okay, quick political lesson for you. Okay, we have the Herodians, well, we'll start with the Zealots. We have the Zealots over here. And all these people are Jewish people groups, right? Every single one of them. So we have the Zealots over here, right? And the Zealots hate Rome. They hate everything about Rome. They hate that Rome has occupied what they believe to be Jewish territory. And so because of that, man, the zealots are the one who are going to pull out a knife and cut a Roman just because of the fact they're Roman. They were crazy. And on top of that, the Romans refused to pay the imperial tax. They're like, nope, not going to happen. I refuse to pay it. I will stab you if you try to. Okay, that was that people group. Then you have the Pharisees. Okay? Pharisees, again, another Jewish group. But the Pharisees, they didn't like Rome, but they're not as extreme as the Zealots. Okay? They weren't happy about this idea of having to pay a tax to Rome, but they were just going to do it begrudgingly to kind of keep Rome off their back. Okay? And then you have the Herodians. Herodians, again, another Jewish people group who identified themselves based on the fact that they were cool with Rome. Like, we're good. We're actually, we're actually going to submit to a guy by the name of Herod. We'll get to them in just a second. So the Pharisees, they only cared about the Jewish law. That's their claim to fame. They cared about the law. They cared about making sure that like everybody was following the law to a T. Like the law, think back to the Ten Commandments. Okay, think back to the Torah. That's the Jewish law. If you're ever wondering what Torah means, it literally means the law. Okay, and so you think back to that, and those are the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so the Pharisees, man, they were all about those five books of the Bible. Those five books, we're going to know those, like they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I say that because all of us are like, oh yeah, I can memorize that. No, 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 no. They memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They memorized from, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Deuteronomy 34-12. Okay? Whisper to the person that you came with this morning, how many verses you think that is? Go ahead. I'll give you 10 seconds. 
Just go on, take a wild guess. And if you're one of those over-guessers, just don't guess because that bothers me every single time. Okay, so these people, these people, they memorized verbatim 5,852 verses of Scripture. These are not dumb people. They know the law. That's why they keep trying to come up with these different ideas of how to trap Jesus because they're like, they're breaking a law. And Jesus is like, is that actually a law or did you create that law later on? Show me where it says. Show me where it says. Right? And on and on. So this idea that the Pharisees were just kind of like dummies who all they were trying to do was kill Jesus for positional power, like that is part of it. But these are some of the smartest, most well-respected men in their community. Like they would have been more educated than anybody, anybody else. So these were very, very smart people. 5,842 verses. I watched a, an Instagram video the other day where a guy's walking around Walmart with 40 bucks and he's like, hey, I'll give you 40 bucks if you can tell me a verse of the Bible. Right? He goes to like eight, nine, ten people. No one can do it. If that dude ran into a Pharisee, he'd be broke real fast. Right? So the idea, again, that these guys were just some buffoons who didn't know much about much is kind of, kind of short, short-sighted. So that's one group of people who came to, to gang up on Jesus. The other group's a little bit more interesting, only because we don't ever hear about them ever. They're the Herodians, like I said. If you're familiar with the birth narrative of Jesus, right, the Christmas story, okay, the bad guy in the Christmas story is a guy by the name of King Herod. Okay? So if you look at the root, Herodians, Herod, this is not the same King Herod. This is actually his son. Okay? So that King Herod had died, and his son had now taken over. It was a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. And he's the ruler over Galilee and Perea from 4 B.C. all the way to 39 A.D. So here's a question. Why does it matter who the Herodians were or who Herod Antipas was? Okay? Because the Herodians are a group of Jewish people, like I said, who were loyal not to the Jewish faith, not to the law. They were loyal to Rome, which meant that them and the Pharisees should never get along. There is no reason these two groups of people should be hanging out in any way, in any way, shape, or form, right? The Pharisees would have seen the Herodians as traitors to, a, to the Jewish nation because the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Rome, and they believed that, that they were occupying territory that was rightfully yours, meaning we have two groups of people who are not able to get along, who are now teaming up in order to take Jesus down. Why? Because the Pharisees are threatened that Jesus is going to start an uprising against their positional power with the Jewish people. And the Herodians are worried that Jesus is going to start an uprising against the Roman government. So any enemy of your enemy is your friend, right? And so these two people, they are, they are going to work together to do their best um, to be able to take Jesus down. So they team up together. And they're going to try to catch him and make him say something blasphemous or something against Rome. And I'm sure they, these guys thought they had Jesus pinned perfectly at this point. right? Because if Jesus answers this question saying, saying, no, don't pay the tax to Rome, then all of a sudden the Herodians are upset. Rome is upset. But if they ask the question, Jesus is like, yes, pay it, then the Pharisees are going to get upset. Or the Zealots, maybe, were going to get upset at that point. So they start the whole conversation by trying to butter Jesus up, right? If you look at verses 14 and following, they're like, they're essentially like, teacher, we know, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're not, you're, you're not swayed by others because you pay, you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, 
right? So they're just like buttering Jesus. It sounds kind of like the way that my kids talk to me or mom anytime they want something. They think we're going to say no, right? You guys have had those, had those conversations before. They walk up and they're just like, hello, father. <laughs> what? <laughs> We've cleaned our rooms and scrubbed every toilet. And we know as an honorable man, you want what's best for us. And surely what's best for us is ice cream. So would you give us the pleasure of please giving us ice cream, father? And I'm like, Caesar, like, absolutely not. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. No, just kidding. Um, so the words they're using here are completely and totally, they're just, they're empty words. And Jesus sees right through it. He calls them hypocrites in verse 15. And he says, like, why are you asking me this? Why are you asking? Fine, give me one of your coins. And he asks for a coin specifically. The coin is called a denarius, okay? And a denarius is a Roman silver coin. Um, and it would have been equivalent to about a day's wages, Translated for us, probably roughly around, around 60 bucks. So it's worth, worth a decent amount of money, right? And so, of course, somebody has the coin in his pocket. I can just imagine, right, after Jesus kind of skirts the, the Pharisees and the scribes from the last story, teaching about authority and that sort of thing. And then the, the Pharisees are like, hey, Herodians, we got to get this guy. So they, like, huddle up together. They hatch a plan. And someone's saying, okay, I'm going to butter him up. Okay, I'm going to tell him all these nice things. But then... Hey, Cephas, you, got, you have a coin in your pocket, you got a denarius, just in case that comes up. Because Jesus asked for a coin, and it says, hey, someone gave him, gave him a coin right away. And they hand it to Jesus, and I can kind of see him in my, in my mind's eye, just kind of like flipping that coin over in his hand a little bit, looking at the two sides of that coin, before asking whose picture is in it, or, or, or on it, and what is inscribed on it. Whose picture in it, and whose uh, inscription is on it. And so we focus mainly on the image part because we recognize the images of, of Caesar. I did, a big, I did a bit of digging to see, like, what was the inscription on that actual uh, denarius? And the inscription read, Pontiff Maxim. Okay, it's actually a shortened version of Pontifus Maximus, meaning the high priest. Okay? That's interesting because Caesar is the one on the coin. So why does Caesar have Pontiff Maxim underneath his picture on a coin. Well, it actually represents the idolatrous Roman state religion. Who is the head of the Roman state religion? Also, Caesar. So Pontiff Maxim on the coin claimed both imperial authority over them, but it also claimed imperial worship over them as well, which is why these Pharisees and, and why these, these Herodians thought they had Jesus pinned here. Quick little, quick little side note, an interesting irony to the entire thing is oftentimes the Pope is called Pontifus Maximus. So write home about that. So after Jesus, he asks the question. They, of course, tell Jesus that it's Caesar's, which was true. And then he says something that is used incorrectly all the time when it comes to our theology. And this is the most common part. Like we quote this all the time. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And so, like, maybe you've heard in different translation, rent to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Meaning is the same thing. And they use it, a lot of times people use it to show, like, a separation of church, church and state. Like, we use it at tax time, get a Caesar, what is Caesar? I think we kind of we miss the mark with this entire thing. And Jesus here, his answer avoids the trap that's set by him by these two groups of people. Like, Caesar, he has a legitimate claim. He has a legitimate claim to these people. They are, they are people who are in his empire, and he is providing goods and services to them. And so because of that, they pay a tax to him, right? 
Sound familiar? It's the whole reason we pay taxes. I don't care how you feel about taxes or you don't feel about taxes, but our taxes are at least supposed to go to benefiting us as a community, right? Roads, all the other things that taxes pay for. I'm a pastor, right? I don't know all the other things that taxes pay for. But that's our responsibility, right? They pay, like we pay our taxes and the government is supposed to, is supposed to provide goods and services from those, those taxes, and so Caesar has a legitimate claim, a rightful claim to these things. The, the, the weird part, oftentimes the zealots would be like, no, we don't, owe, we don't owe Caesar anything. I refuse to give Caesar anything. Because of the fact that I'm a Jewish person, you are occupying our territory, I refuse to pay anything. So Caesar has his claim. But the interesting thing is, so does God. And so Jesus is saying, give to each person his rightful claim. Right? As long as God's rights are safeguarded, guarded, as long as they're not asking you to do anything malicious towards God or anything outside of what God would have you do, there's no need then to question the rights of Caesar. Jesus does, however, does not, however, rather say the claims of God and those of Caesar are the same. Right? Let's think about this for just a second. The obligation to pay Caesar some of his own coinage in return for the amenities, uh, amenities that he provides is, is fine. But God's rights are supposed to be honored as well. So Jesus isn't saying that there are two separate but independent spheres. He's not saying this over here is for Caesar and this over here is for God. Because we should know as Christians, people who, who follow Jesus, that everything that belongs to Caesar's also is encapsulated by God. Everything is God. Everything in the whole earth is, is God's. And knowing that Caesar is even in charge of the entire thing, we should also recognize that Caesar is only there because of the fact that God ordained for him to be there in the first place. God is sovereign. He controls everything. So everything is ordained by him. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, this is what it says. It's about the same thing. It says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family, believers, family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That is pretty, pretty clear Pretty clear wording there if you ask me. And this is iterated a number of times in Scripture. First Timothy talks about it. Romans uh, chapter 13 talks about it. That we are supposed to live under the positional authority that God has placed above us while at the same time living in humble obedience to a higher calling and a higher power that we know as God. So why do we get this whole thing kind of wrong? So not only is Jesus saying here there's no reason not to pay Caesar because everything that Caesar has belongs to God anyway. Beyond that, all Caesar wants is your money. That's all, that's all Caesar wants. There's no reason that this should ever be questioned. Give it back to him. He provides goods and services, fine. Give it, give it back to him. Here's the distinction. Caesar wants just your money. Give to Caesar what is here's. Here's the issue with how we read this, is because of the fact that, that Jesus is talking to Caesar about money or talking to, talking to this group of people about Caesar's money, we often jump to the conclusion that that means that this is going to be a message about tithing and living generously. 
Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's taxes. Give to God what is God's. That's your tithes and your offerings. That's not what this says. He says nothing about giving any money to God in this, in this account right here. There's nothing about it. So then the question actually becomes, okay, well, what was Jesus talking about then? If he's talking about the idea that see, like we should give Caesar his money, what does that mean that we're supposed to give to God what is, what is God's? He's not talking about money. He's not talking about the tithe. He's not talking about living generously. What is he talking about? Give to God what is God's. What is that answer? It's simply everything. And I think that's a hard conclusion to come to. It's actually a lot easier for us to jump to money, right? We're like, all right, cool. You want some of my money? I'll give some of my money. I'll open my pocketbook. I'm totally okay with opening, opening my pocketbook. But, but everything... How is it that we do that? How do we give everything to God? Are we going to be like the rich young ruler that we talked about a couple of weeks ago and leave Jesus sadly because he wants us to like sell everything? Like, no, that's not what he's saying either. Jesus is saying everything in the entirety of your lives is the Lord, so give it all to him. Give your entire life to the Lord. Romans 12.1, it's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I have it hanging in my office. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul here, he's the one who wrote the book of Romans. Uh, the image he uses here is kind of like an Old Testament priest who's, who's offering the body of, a, of an animal as a sacrifice on the temple altar. But it also brings to mind the account of Abraham. Maybe you're familiar with this in the book of Genesis where Abraham, God tells him, hey, go sacrifice your son. And so Abraham, and he gets, gets, gets his son and a bunch of wood and all this stuff, and they walk up, and about to, Abraham's about to sacrifice his son, and God spares his son. He's like, Abraham, wait, and there's a ram, and they lay the ram on the altar on Mount Moriah, as God had commanded him to do. And of course, it should remind us of Jesus's, Jesus offering his own body on the cross as a sacrifice for us. That's what this is speaking. That's what Romans 12.1 is speaking to. And interestingly, many Greek and Roman leaders proclaimed themselves to be gods, right, and demanded that people worship them. But when Jesus here tells us to give to God what is God's, he's saying that only God is worthy of our worship. What do we give him? Everything. That's how we worship God. That's how we honor God. Caesar can require that we pay taxes, but he cannot demand our worship. We owe that to God and to God alone. So what's our sacrifice then to God? Paul tells us it's to give our bodies, ourselves, in total and complete surrender to him. This is our true and proper worship, to offer everything that we are, to offer everything that we own, because we bear his image Scripture asserts that humans, humans are made in God's image. Genesis 1.27 talks about that. That means that God has imprinted his image on us. In one sense, we are God's coinage. Therefore, we belong to him. He has ultimate ownership of, like, over all of us, and we exist to serve his purposes, and we owe him, at the very least, our worship. Because humans bear his image, to some degree, the attributes of God. 
can be seen in us. And not like his eternal attributes, but we still marvel at the attributes we share in common with, like personhood, reason, intelligence, love, understanding of moral law, emotion, creativity, appreciation of beauty, like all of these things. And the human spirit especially is created to be similar to that of God's spirit. So there could be, there could be communion between the two. God's desire is that we would walk with him. God's desire is that we would, we would commune with him and know him intimately in a very real way. He created our spirit like this for, for all of these things to be able to happen. And we're also to use these attributes to represent God and extend his kingdom as we're here on earth. None of the other creatures created in all of creation have been given this privilege We alone have this privilege. When God's spirit indwells and fills a person, there is an intimate communion between God and that person. So all that to be said, this morning we need to come to an understanding, not just that it's biblical to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but more importantly for our daily living, living, that that we are supposed to give God what is God's. And what is God's is our entire life our entire being, everything that we have, everything that we love, everything that we own and cherish, every single piece of it is his. So let's go back then to the story I started with. When I talked about the idea that the sin that you're struggling with is probably not the same sin that you struggled with when you were 15, if you're a maturing follower of Christ. The question becomes, why is that true? Well, it's true because if you're a maturing believer in the Lord, we should be offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, becoming more and more like Jesus every single day, becoming more holy, becoming more pleasing to the Lord every single day. So the sin in your life should be changing simply because you're becoming more holy, which sounds kind of backwards, like I sin differently because of the fact that I'm holy. No, you sin the same. The sin that you're struggling with is hopefully different now, right? Those bigger sin issues you used to struggle with, maybe were were all that you could see when you first came to Jesus, right? Maybe you came to Jesus like, like some people, it's just like the darkest pit that they've ever been in in their entire life. They have hit rock bottom. They can barely see light on the way up. They think, God, I'm just, uh, this is it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit my life to you. I'm going to declare you Lord of my life. And you see that, and then all of a sudden you, you recognize you're addicted to drugs and smoking and drinking and sleeping around. You're like, man, these things are not honoring to God. If I am going to call myself a Christian, i got to get rid of some of these issues that I have in my life. Some of these big, big, bolder issues that I have in my life. And so you worked through things. You found a, a small group of people willing to hold you accountable. You read scripture. You came to church. You're praying. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you in your life. And you're like, man, I got past those big things. And then as they got removed, you started to notice other things, smaller things that these big, bolder sins were actually hiding behind. Things like lust that you didn't realize was even there. And you've made progress because you aren't acting out your lust anymore. But man, that was there for a long time. And you slowly get rid of lust because you're choosing to follow God. You're choosing to read his word. You're choosing to surround yourself with other believers who want you to be more like Jesus. You're allowing his spirit to speak into your life. You're reading his word and all those things. You're making, like, you're making God more and more honored when you're, with your life. 
And so you've like gotten rid of lust now, and you're like, I'm so done with lust. This is great. I have arrived. And then all of a sudden you log on to social media and envy creeps in. And you didn't see it before. You didn't see it before because sex outside of marriage and lust and drunkenness were like on, like that was the dashboard of your life. You're like, I've worked so hard to get past these things. How come I'm still struggling with sin? Why am I still working towards it? Man, there's sin. It just, con- it just continues and it continues and it continues. You know why? Because we're sinful creatures. And it's going to continue to happen until we get to eternity with Jesus. The exact same thing, this, this plays out really, really well. When I was 19, 20 years old, and I'll wrap up with this, um, I was an intern at a church. And we used to go down to Mexico. We used to build houses um, for, for families down there who didn't have any, any homes, right? And so day one, our job was to frame the foundation and pour the concrete, okay? It had to be day one or else you weren't going to finish the house. If you didn't get concrete in, the house was not going to have a roof by the end of day five. Okay? So you go through and, and they have everything framed, but before we could pour the concrete, we had to get rid of all of the debris that was in the framing of this foundation, right? So you pull some high school students in, you start walking through and and you're tossing out rocks and sticks and trash and dog poop and all the different things that are in there, right? And you go through, you're like, all right, we did a good job. And you turn around and you look and you're like, wait, there's still a ton of stuff in here. Why is there still so much? So you go through again, you get like that medium-sized stuff, smaller rocks, littler twigs, all of these things. You get to the end, you turn around, you're like, man, but there's still, there's still more stuff in here that we need to clear, And as you get down to it, this is the reality of our lives when it comes to sin. We could have spent the rest of our lives trying to make that foundation perfect. And still there would be grains of sand that we had to pick out of that foundation in order to make sure that it was perfect for those people. Welcome to Christianity. You will never arrive at perfection on this side of eternity. It's never going to happen. All of us have work to do if we're going to give God, give to God what is God's. I don't care if you're 90. I don't care if you're 19. Every single one of us needs to constantly and consistently allow the Spirit of the Lord to pierce your heart and to illuminate the sin that you're wrestling with. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't have anything to worry about, ask your spouse. (laughs) They'll let you know. But if that is legitimately your attitude this morning, you think to yourself, I'm good, I don't have anything that I need to work on, you're wrong, because we all do. It's this process, this theological process called sanctification, becoming more and more holy. And as long as you have breath in your lungs, you also have sin in your life that you need to be able to get rid of. Can you imagine, church, like what this place would look like if instead of like putting on an air of almost, almost arrogance and, and assuming that we had arrived this holier-than-thou-art sort of, sort of vibe that we would simply like start each morning by saying, Lord, allow your spirit to show me what is in my life that is not honoring to you. What if that's how we started our days? Instead of, hey, God, get me to, get, man, uh, just give me a couple extra thousand dollars in my bank account. Lord, make, make me, my taxes not as high as they're going to be. Instead of just like asking for things, like God is just this genie in a lamp that you can just like manifest things out of thin air, which is not a thing. 
If you just started humbly and submitted to God and said, Holy Spirit, show me the things in my life that are not honoring to you. And then we simply just waited and we listened to what he had to say with us. And there would no longer be an air of superiority surrounding churches, if that was the case. If that's how believers, Christians, started their days. But rather, there'd be one of humility because of the recognition that none of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. And there are still little pebbles that need to be cleared out so we can be holy and pleasing to the Lord as we tread towards him towards the end of our lives. I don't know about you, but that's a group of people I want to be a part of. A group of people who are, who are humble enough to say, look, I don't have all the answers. I don't have it all figured out. I'm still working on sin that I have in my life. And Jesus gives me grace upon grace upon grace. And all I want to do is be more like him on a regular basis. So I'm working through it. Do you want to work through some stuff with me? Like, would you partner with me in that and doing our best to try to honor God more and more with our lives? Starting this week, man, let's be that church, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this, this text even, Father, this idea of like giving to Caesar what is Caesar's, which talking about money and then giving to God what is God's and having no clarity. And we get the recognition then of, of what is yours is everything. Not everything else, not everything but what we owe Caesar, but everything is yours. Our lives, our jobs, our money, our families, our homes, our time, all of it belongs to you. And so for just a second right now, Father, I just, I ask that, that, that for the believers in the, in the room, that your spirit right now would just pierce their hearts with what it is that we need to get rid of in our lives in order to honor you in a more real way. Illuminate for us right now, Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that we would honor you by working towards actively getting rid of that. And not just white-knuckling the whole thing, Father, but we would be willing to get into your word and be willing to get in with a group of people who want, to, want you to look more like Jesus. God, that we would dedicate our entire life to you. And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, there's another group of you in here who maybe have not made that profession of faith, haven't made that prayer and commitment to the Lord. But you're ready to, and you've got these big, bolder sins in your life, and maybe that's the issue, that you keep thinking to yourself, well, I'll, I'll commit my life to Jesus once I have these issues, these sin issues taken care of. Don't wait. Jesus loves you right where you're at, and you've got the rest of your life to deal with the sin issues and pull those pebbles out. So if that's you this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray along with me. The quietness of your heart, just simply say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. that I've got lots of sins. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me, who's taken that sin from me. And at C, I would choose to follow you every single day.
to become more and more holy, to become more and more a living sacrifice for you, Father. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.